Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we discuss energy cooperation in the U.S.-India relationship. In the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, analysis of the Trump administration's international energy policy has taken on heightened importance. One area where the United States has made tremendous strides in recent years is in expanding the depth of its cooperation with India on energy issues. These include everything from helping Indian states and the central government in meeting its goal of generating 175 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2022, to commercial opportunities to sell U.S. oil and gas to a country where oil makes up 31% of all imports. In fact, Delhi is projected to pay its highest ever cost on oil imports this fiscal year, nearly $125 billion. These two diverging goals in the relationship, deepening and broadening renewables cooperation while encouraging Indian imports of U.S. oil and gas, have the potential to require a distinct balancing act. Joining the pod to help listeners understand the issues in play are experts Kartikeya Singh and Raymond Vickery. Dr. Karthike Singh serves as the Deputy Director and Fellow of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies. At CSIS, he oversees the U.S.-India State and Urban Initiative, a unique effort that aims to foster direct engagement between U.S. and Indian subnational entities. The Honorable Raymond Vickery is a non-resident senior associate with CSIS and senior advisor to the Albright Stonebridge Group. He has served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce in the Clinton administration and as a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. Ray also played a leading role in passing U.S.-India civil nuclear legislation in the mid-2000s. The pair provide an overview of India's progress in getting serious about the renewable energy sector before the Paris Climate Accords, discuss the opportunities and challenges for the United States exporting oil and gas to India, run down the geopolitical hurdles of India's high oil imports from Iran, and analyze the legacy of the 2005 civil nuclear agreement between the two countries. Ray and Karthike also explain the halting progress on two nuclear power plant projects in India as a result of liability concerns over who would be legally and financially responsible in the event of an accident. Ray and Karthike caught up with my colleague Aman Thacker, research associate in the Wadwani chair, to discuss these issues and more. Welcome to Kajit Asia. I'm Aman Thacker, research associate with the Wadwani chair at CSIS. One of the areas of U.S.-India cooperation that we at the Wadwani Chair focus on is energy cooperation. The opportunities for such cooperation are incredibly broad. However, today, we're going to discuss whether there's a growing tension in the U.S. energy strategy vis-a-vis India. Joining me to tackle this are Dr. Kartikeya Singh and the Honorable Raymond Vickery. Kartikeya Singh serves as a Deputy Director and Fellow of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies. Raymond Vickery is a non-resident senior associate with CSIS and senior advisor to Albright Stormbridge Group. Ray, welcome to Kajit Asia. Glad to be here, Alan. And Kartike, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here again. I want to start with you, Kartike. Prior to the signing of the Paris Accord, India committed to generating 175 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2022. How has this commitment to renewables shaped the U.S.-India energy relationship, and what's being done to sustain it? Well, I think I want to take a little step back in time here to... to to highlight how India got to even signing the Paris Accord and the role that the U.S. played in that and capitalizing on um, the rise of Indian leadership that was committed to a clean energy future. Um, And I think people need to understand that for the longest time, 
um, India was perhaps a thorn on uh, the U.S. Uh, side in terms of the international climate negotiations, um, being essentially seen as a defender of the rights uh, of the global south, of developing countries to emit more carbon uh, to catch up with developed countries. Um, and one of the common uh, themes um, throughout the climate negotiations over the last couple of decades has really been this um, idea of common but differentiated responsibilities and uh, based on historical emissions that developed countries have had and around them to arrive at a stage of development and therefore their responsibilities um, to reduce emissions are greater than those of developing nations. And India actually did that uh, early on in 1992. Um, and this was really um, a theme, this sort of us versus them uh, for a long time. Um, in 2010, I would say that um, the Indian government um, actually started to introduce a couple of domestic reforms that were starting to um, understand that India's um, economic sustainability was underpinned by having stable uh, stable ecological and environmental um, grounding, which is threatened by climate change. So things like introducing the, car the essentially a carbon tax, but it's a coal tax in 2010 uh, to build up a national clean energy fund to help India develop a corpus to transition itself to clean energy um, was a big step forward. It was also the year of India um, basically announcing a 20 gigawatt of uh, installed solar capacity by 2022. Um, in 2011, India took another step forward by introducing a renewable energy certificates uh, trading um, uh, scheme. Um, in 2012, they took this uh, forward to dive forward on things like um, enhanced energy efficiency. They had a national mission for that that came out. Uh, and in 2013, um, they announced a national um, electric mobility plan um, for 2022 um, and launching the first sort of fuel consumption standard. Um, and then 2014 came around. Um, and this is an important year because it's the year that Prime Minister Narendra Modi was elected uh, with a pretty serious uh, backing in their Lok Sabha for, by the BJP. Um, and he basically outlined three visions, uh, you know, the 24 by 7 power for all by 2019. Um, uh, and in addition, um, ratcheting up things like um, the solar target uh, from 20 gigawatts to 100 gigawatts, adding another 75 gigawatts of renewable energy um, that's non-solar uh, to the target. So India was starting to line up its um, domestic actions and seeing that its energy security really would be supported by large-scale investments in clean energy and um, and a heavy hand on demand-side man management measures and energy efficiency. Um, and the Obama administration certainly recognized that and developed a pretty comprehensive uh, plan to seize on this leadership um, and bring India to the table to ratifying, um, you know, the Paris Agreement and, and also brokering, um, you know, a new um, deal for uh, enhanced investments into clean energy R&D through a project called Mission Innovation, which India is also a partner to. Um, and um, so basically, you know, India rising to the occasion of, of appreciating the need to, to have investments in renewables is something that um, has allowed energy to be a key pillar of cooperation between the two countries. Um, and there was a very robust energy dialogue between the two countries that's been going on for well over a decade, spanning all kinds of technology cooperation areas. But um, 
in this new administration, what we've seen that is essentially a recast of that into a strategic energy partnership, which rests on four pillars instead of seven. Um, and some of those still include the same topics. Um, so it's really um, you know, a matter of sustaining um, some of this uh, work, which we do see going on. Unfortunately, on the R&D side, that's not being sustained. Um, the $100 million um, public-private partnership to advance clean energy research on solar, building energy efficiency, and biofuels has, has ended, and there's no talk of, of renewing that. Um, there is still work happening in the power and energy efficiency space, but there's um, there's more of a direction towards fossil fuels um, in this uh, new with this new administration. Ray, coming to you, you recently returned from India, where you spoke on strategic aspects of U.S. India energy engagement at the World Energy Policy Summit held in New Delhi. In your remarks, you focused on engagement on oil and gas. So, can you outline some of the commercial opportunities for the United States and India? on oil and gas, and also just discuss how important this issue is to President Trump and his administration? Well, certainly, Amin. Um, and picking up on what Kartikeya has already referenced, uh, the signing of a strategic energy partnership, which is really a recasting of the uh, energy dialogue that had been going on between the U.S. Uh, and India. And the fundamental uh, emphasis in terms of what Secretary Perry did with Minister Pradhan, and it's significant that the, uh, the document was signed with the Minister uh, for Oil and Gas, uh, is on oil and gas. And that's not by chance because the United States because of the uh, fracking and horizontal drilling technology has developed into the world's number one producer of oil and gas. People think of Saudi Arabia, they think of Russia, but those, those countries really rank below the United States in the production of that. Uh, along with that, we've had a very great sea change in the United States from being a, an energy, oil, and gas importing country to one which is an exporting uh, uh, country. So with these developments uh, and the fact that India has to import 80% of its uh, oil needs and about 30% of its gas uh, needs, uh, there is an obvious uh, emphasis on oil and gas. And the question is, well, how will this uh, play out? And there's a lot of opportunity, uh, particularly on uh, the gas side. India has made a commitment to uh, shift uh, as the United States has uh, toward uh, natural gas, but has been unable to do that on its own resources. What has happened is that you, you've built some uh, gas plants for power and they don't have enough gas. Well, we've got lots of gas, so the question is how to get it from here to there. And already we have two uh, huge uh, plants which had been put into place uh, for liquefaction. Uh, one with Chenier Industries down in Louisiana, another uh, very close to where we're sitting uh, on the Chesapeake Bay uh, with Dominion Energy. Uh, Gale, the Gas Authority of India, has already signed agreements both with Chenier and Dominion for millions of tons of LNG uh, per year. 
So this is an obvious uh, area in which uh, there is a need uh, and there is a supply on the oil uh, side as well. In December of uh, 2015, the United States removed for the first time in over 40 years a restriction on oil exports, and we're now exporting oil um, uh, to, to India. So these are primary areas, but um, the fly in the ointment, if you will, is whether or not uh, this initiative can withstand uh, the constraints put on it by Iran sanctions, the withdrawal from the Iran uh, nuclear deal by this administration, and also the other sanctions, which are not as directly pointed as energy at energy, but will have an impact, whether it be uh, the countering America's adversaries uh, through Sanctions Act, CATSA, uh, or indeed even the increase in uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum. So I look at this as uh, a squaring of the circle, and this is all coming to a head here very rapidly because uh, the administration has said by November 4, India must go to zero in terms of Iranian oil uh, imports, and Iran is now the second or third uh, largest supplier of oil. That's not going to happen. So what is going to happen? Well, that uh, remains to be seen, uh, but is uh, a matter of deep policy concern, both for the United States and India. Well, we'll get back to that question on, on Iran oil and the rest of the sanctions uh, later in this conversation. But Kartike, um, you also got back from India very recently. You were at RE Invest, which is this huge renewable energy expo, which is held by the Ministry of New and Renewable Energy in India. So based on what you and Ray have said so far, it seems clear that there are these two seemingly divergent demands, uh, you know, in the U.S.-India energy relationship. There is uh, a, you know, we're deepening our renewable energy cooperation with uh, India, and we're also demanding that India buy U.S. oil and gas. So how do you see this this tension affecting the U.S. India energy engagement moving forward? Yeah, and I mean, I think also to uh, pick up on on the threads that uh, you know what Ray just said. Um, you know, while I was also there, the central government um, basically decided that it was going to try and ease the burden of the high uh, fuel costs for the Indian public. Um, uh, by, you know, three rupees and um, some pese, and they were urging state governments to also do the same. And we've started to see certain BJP states in particular uh, rise to the occasion at the cost of millions of, of dollars of lost revenue um, to to make it easier um, for consumers uh, so that they're not hurting at the pump. So um, having India, um, you know, which is less shielded from international oil shocks, um, be a consumer and be dependent on U.S. oil, which is certainly a strategic ally and, and it works well as part of our Indo-Pacific um, strategy is uh, it's certainly good to, to get the oil from a reliable partner, but uh, at the same time, not being able to diversify its sources and for consumers to pay high rates um, seems to be a little bit at odds of making a key ally, um, you know, energy secure. Uh, we, you know, in the Indian government understands that um, the future for them is electric. It's not, uh, at least for the transportation side, they don't want uh, to be dependent on foreign sources of oil. And that's kind of where this National Electric Mobility Mission was really launched from and has been, we've seen way 
wavering levels of commitment, but at one point in time, they were shooting for the moon for 100% electric uh, fleet and no more, uh, you know, internal combustion engine-based vehicles being sold in the country by 2030. Um, and so they really do not want to be uh, addict to, addicted to a source of, of fuel that they don't have uh, secure supplies of, no matter where that comes from. And I think, um, therefore, it is important to continue, if you want a strong ally in the Indo-Pacific, uh, to make it a more energy secure nation. And this is important given that what's playing out subnationally in India is um, at varying degrees, uh, sort of a paradox of plenty of Indian states uh, achieving power surplus uh, status. Of course, that doesn't mean that every last household has access to electricity, but um, there is more power being generated, um, and that needs to go somewhere. So for the first time, India is an exporter of electricity to neighboring countries. Um, and at the same time, with the federal government here having more of an emphasis on oil and gas, um, and through the CSIS um, project that's funded by the State Department uh, called the U.S.-India State and Urban Initiative, we've been building pretty incredible subnational energy partnerships. And we've socialized, you know, over 30 U.S. states to the idea of international energy collaboration with a country like India. And uh, many of those states have offerings that are in the power and energy efficiency and clean energy side, uh, both technical expertise as well as technologies. And, and they're also hungry for those technologies from the Indian market. So the state to state side is a little bit at odds with what's happening um, at the federal level. Um, but, you know, I think there's it's some of its optics. I think um, as long as some of the good federal programming around um, power sector, clean energy, um, and um, energy efficiency work continues, uh, we can get on the same page. Now, Ray, you, you previewed this uh, a little bit ago, but let's, uh, let's dive into the geopolitics of USAID energy cooperation. You obviously mentioned the deadline, the November 4th deadline for all countries, including India, to cut Iran oil exports to zero. And in your speech at WEPS, you mentioned the CATSA sanctions as a major impediment to energy cooperation. On the flip side, we've seen Secretary uh, Rick Perry, uh, Secretary of Energy Rick Perry, outline five ways the U.S. is partnering with the Indo-Pacific region on energy, and India is playing a big role uh, in, the, in those five ways that the U.S. is partnering in the region. So how do you see the geopolitical dimension of this playing out? You know, where does this go in the administration uh, after November 4th? Well, I think the, the way it's going to go is pretty much the way it has gone in the past. Uh, the United States and India have um, a great ability to muddle through, if you will. Uh, and I, uh, in the hopeful scenario, believe that that's going to, uh, to continue and allow uh, the United States and India not to have these um, extraneous factors uh, affect what should be the strongest uh, par strategic partnership uh, in the world. We have uh, the same interests, particularly in regard to uh, China, uh, in regard to freedom of uh, the seas, in regard to a rules-based system uh, in the world. Uh, and we just can't let the uh, relationship between these two greatest democracies uh, be significantly adversely affected uh, by uh, the politics of what is going on uh, in oil and gas with Iran particularly, but Russia secondarily. Uh, as you may know, uh, when uh, President Putin was uh, 
in uh, India just um, a few weeks after we had our secretaries of uh, state and uh, defense over there, uh, an emphasis was on energy, and uh, and Russia saying, well, we can if 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 you can't get it from uh, the United States, Iran, we're here for you. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about the, the nuclear in in a few minutes. But uh, it is the, the ability of the United States to make some sorts of compromise here, I think, which will, will save the day, if you will. Uh, that having been said, uh, what happens in the next tweet, I can't tell you. Uh, and what happens in the tweet uh, after the fourth, uh, I can't tell you. But what should happen uh, is is really been uh, foreshadowed about what happened before in the lead up to uh, the nuclear deal with Iran. And that is uh, there were mechanisms which were uh, rupee uh, euro mechanisms. Uh, there was uh, some understanding that if you are making progress in terms of reducing, uh, imports, then you're not going to turn on your best friend uh, in the area, which is India, uh, and and cut it off. So I think that the, that can happen, but it takes uh, statesmanship on both sides, uh, and uh, I've been a big advocate of uh, the engagement on an economic basis, and it seems to me this is exactly where we need that kind of ballast and stability so that uh, the overall uh, questions in strategic don't necessarily run off in one direction or another, which is not advantageous uh, to uh, the two greatest democracies on the face of the earth. Absolutely. Well, we're at our last question, and this last question is for both of you. U.S.-India's civil nuclear agreement was a pivotal moment in U.S.-India energy cooperation, as well as in the broader strategic relationship. However, the passage of a strict liability law by the Indian parliament, as well as delays in the construction of U.S.-designed reactors, have presented obstacles. How do you see the impact of the nuclear deal of the last, over the last 10 years and in the future as well? Kartike, we'll go to you first, and then we'll go to Ray. Yeah, so on the nuclear issue, um, and I do remember when the, the nuclear deal was signed, I was living in India after college, and uh, there were a lot of protests in Delhi around what this meant for India, and I think some of the protests have continued to, to plague a lot of the construction of reactors in India. But I think it was a symbolic uh, moment because it brought India out of the sort of sanction space uh, that it was under as a result of the nuclear tests of the 90s. Um, it showcased that a major nuclear power, the U.S., was seeing India as a responsible nuclear power, um, and that um, has since then, the United States has been advocating for India to, to gain access to the nuclear suppliers group, um, to have access to fuels. And we've seen that um, that has been a continued ask um, by the government of India for the U.S. to champion um, in those circles. Um, obviously, China has not allowed that to happen. Um, but it has opened the door for other ally nations of the U.S. to, to push forward, um, in addition separately to Russia, to push forward on nuclear projects in India. Um, and just in, in late July, there was an announcement by Electricité de France, which is a large state state-backed utility in, uh, in France um, to partner with GE, which is a U.S. company, um, on one of the largest nuclear projects on the planet, a 9,900 megawatt um, power plant um, that will be built in Maharashtra. Of course, there are construction delays there as well. Um, but all of this is to say is I think um, 
you know, the, that nuclear deal really opened up the space um, for India to contemplate having nuclear in its energy mix. Um, and this is important, again, from an energy security perspective for a country like India, uh, which does have large coal reserves, but that coal isn't of particularly high quality, and India is also dependent on coal. Um, India has been innovating um, in fast breeder um, reactors and um, thorium, which it does have plenty of supply uh, of. Um, but to be able to think about a nuclear future by having the nuclear deal signed, even if there has not been um, as much activity of construction and as many um, megawatts flowing from those projects, um, I think it is significant um, to have access to that technology. Um, as part of its um, energy transition. Um, of course, nuclear um, will have to sort of wait to see its impact and the energy mix. Um, renewables are undercutting coal as we speak. Um, gas and coal have large uh, gigawatts of stranded assets across the country. Um, so for, for the time being, the, the future looks like it's uh, skewing towards some of the other technologies. Um, so I think that's um, I think it's important for the U.S. to continue to share its technological um, uh, strengths in this space um, with India, uh, whether or not some of these projects actually get off the ground. Well, I think you have to understand that at heart and at, at root, the um, agreement which was announced uh, in 2005 and got through the Congress finally in 2008 and was signed was not an energy agreement. What it was was a strategic agreement which was designed to end the decades of misunderstanding and uh, the untrustworthiness uh, allegations which had been thrown at the United States. And without that civil nuclear deal, and I was uh, instrumental in getting it uh, with others uh, through the Congress because I was secretary for the coalition of partnership with uh, India in that effort, the, the ultimate goal was to restore uh, that trust. And without that, we wouldn't have had the $16 billion worth of uh, defense exports to India. We wouldn't have uh, both sides saying that we were major defense partners. All of that would not have occurred. Now, that doesn't have anything directly uh, to do with whether or not we cooperate in what was envisaged uh, as two nuclear power plants. The, the unspoken quid pro quo was that there were going to be uh, two uh, plants which were going to be developed jointly but between India and the United States. One of them was to be the GE one in Maharashtra, and the other one was to be the Westinghouse one in Andhra Pradesh. Now, neither one of these have come about, but for very different reasons, uh, and very different reasons really, in my view, than the liability question. Uh, GE pulled out explicitly saying it was uh, liability, but there were questions about GE technology and the state of development and whether or not it was suitable at that particular time for going forward. Now, as Cartagena has said, uh, there's been some movement in teaming up with the EDF, and that, and that may happen. But that, you understand, is not really related to the question of liability. On Westinghouse, it's the same sort of situation. 
there's been a lot of talk about liability, but uh, all you have to do is look at Westinghouse's finances and the bankruptcy proceedings, and you will know immediately that that had nothing to do with the liability. And the real question is whether or not Westinghouse can get its finances in order well enough to be able to venture out and do these uh, do the project in Andhra Pradesh. Now that really is going to come back, in my view, to what happens uh, not in India but what happens in the U.S. Westinghouse uh, has completely uh, closed down uh, one of the only two nuclear new nuclear power projects in the United States. The one in South Carolina is dead for all practical purposes. The one in Georgia has been resurrected really at the last minute in part because the Department of Energy has stepped up and made some loans and loan guarantees which enable it at least to hang on at this point. My view is that the United States government needs to understand the strategic aspects not only of the civil nuclear deal and what happens with the nuclear suppliers group, but what happens on the ground uh, in India with nuclear power. And that's going to mean to, uh, stepping up in terms of the finances of Westinghouse and being able to get to a deal. Now, Russia understands that. They've made their piece uh, in terms of liability early on, but more importantly, they are really subsidizing in terms of the development of, of nuclear power plants, the six units that they have uh, completed thus far and the others which they have on the table. So this is still an important part uh, of the picture, and it's a great opportunity for the United States, but it's not going to happen just by saying, well, we'll let the market take care of this and this will do it. It's going to require uh, involvement at the highest levels uh, in both uh, India and the United States to make it happen. Well, great. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Kartika, and thank you so much, Ray. Thank you, Amit. Thank you. That's our show. Very special thanks to Raymond Vickery and Karthike Singh for sharing their insights. You can find the links in the show notes to a recent policy brief on India's key energy access needs by Karthike and an op-ed by Ray covering his remarks at the World Energy Policy Summit. To learn more about the U.S.-India State and Urban Initiative, subscribe to the Wadwani Chair's newsletter and follow their coverage of India's states on Twitter at India States CSIS. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemalangsari. This podcast was written by Jeffrey Bean and Iman Thacker and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. We'd welcome you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps people find us. Check out the new study by the CSIS Expert Working Group on the South China Sea with our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, which offers a regional blueprint for diffusing the South China Sea disputes. Also, be sure to listen to our podcast series, China Power with Bonnie Glazer, for interviews and analysis on all things related to China's rise, and our series, The Impossible State, with Dr. Victor Cha and Dr. Sumi Terry, who break down developments with North Korea. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.